Welcome back to Troubled, a podcast by survivors of institutional abuse for survivors and the general public. Our main goal is obviously to open up this open secret of residential youth abuse. That is America's historical predatory preference for legal mass for-profit child abduction, detainment, trafficking, torture, and sometimes not not often enough murder. So this has obviously been going on since residential schools with assimilation of the indigenous. Reminder, assimilation is still happening. Turtle Island is still a hostile captive nation. I'm just trying to remind you guys because on some social medias today, they're hosting like focusing on residential schools. And since residential schools are definitely the root of the modern tough love cult spawn trouble teen industry, then if you're not familiar with that, please, please do familiarize yourself. Today, we are not talking about that. Today, we're talking with my family school survivor brother, Wes Good, whether you know him as the alt rocker from Dead Wolf, which if you haven't heard of Dead Wolf, please, they're linked in the show description. Hop over to Dead Wolf's D-E-A-D-W-U-L-F's YouTube and check out their song Hancock, which is specifically and only about the family school. So if you've been to the family school or you're just looking for some crazy rack music about stuff like this, um, there's that. So without further ado, finally a conversation with one of our brothers again. All right. Um, so today we have Wes Good with us, who is a brother of mine, a survivor from the Family Foundation School as well. Um, and this is Wes and I've been talking about this, but I'm really excited for an opportunity to have one of our brothers here to address what our brothers go through. So, Wes, thank you so much uh, for speaking up today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So what has it been like for you? Because obviously everybody's heard from us a million times and, and a lot from the female perspective as well. What has it been like after leaving the school? Like, what did it take to, you know, kind of reflect on it? Did you have to change your perspective or did you kind of see it as a cult the whole time and then decide to come speak out so publicly now? Um, I mean, that is, that's realistically, that is just a roller coaster of a story. I mean, at, at both opposite ends of the earth were reached um, within myself in that. I, I think that, I think that during, you know, during, while in the school, there is a very clear representation of, of kind of what you are being subjected to. And I, I knew I didn't, uh, I didn't agree with what was going on. I knew that I didn't like it. I knew I, I knew I wasn't actually buying into a lot of the stuff that I was appearing to buy into. Um, but there's also the other side of that where you kind of get tricked into feeling like it really is working just through whatever mechanisms that were you I mean it was it was a very manipulating situation so it, it it's hard to even remember exactly how I felt and I think there are moments that I felt polar opposites of each other um and then you know I actually so I was a runaway from the school I didn't graduate or anything like that I was I ran away and you know I even I remember thinking before I ran away that I wasn't gonna screw this up you know um and then I had like this wishful thinking of kind of the seed that was planted in me of, okay, well now I'm just going to, I'm going to be sober and I'm going to do this right. And I'm going to prove everybody wrong. Um, and then, you know, there was a very long, there was a very long period of time where I would have fully fit the description of someone with Stockholm syndrome. Um, 
if somebody spoke out against the school on social media or even just me talking with my friends and and people who have been there before if you if you were somebody who spoke out against the school i would tell you to you know quit being a wuss and man up and you probably like the whole spiel like oh you'd probably be in dead you'd or you'd be in jail or dead if you hadn't been there and you made decisions and actions that caused you to be there and blah 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 literally reading from the handbook that was shoved down my throat um and i even even to this day like i i so i don't know when it was that i really started to look at things differently um and it was it was a it was a process it wasn't like i flipped a switch and i all of a sudden was like oh you know um there there was like a growing process in me really learning to it was it was it was learning to accept the truth because i just pushed it away um but yeah i don't know i don't think i i i remember once i started to really understand some of the manipulation and how things got turned in my head i started looking back into like the truth campaign on facebook and the i see your survivor uh pages and stuff like that and and i remember i was at a really low point and i was really coming to terms with not just how i was emotionally affected but some of the things that i had physically seen and and now that i'm like coming as of an adult you know starting to really slowly understand the world in a slightly more mature perspective you know i i i look back on on those pages and i see i see me responding to these types of campaigns like what i am trying to get involved in now in in helping end end this system I see myself just saying disgusting things um, like like things that I've gotten really mad at at my brothers who've gone to this, this school with me for saying to other survivors, just like what I said before, like man up and this and this. Oh, man, like I I've said all of that stuff and I've been that guy. Um, and it's just kind of weird to look back and 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 to read it because. I, when I read my own words, I really believed that in that moment. But I definitely, I definitely don't believe that anymore. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> see, I see things a lot differently. Um, and a lot of that, I think, I, I think a lot of the reasons why I tried to not see things differently is because it hurt. And it was, it's like a really painful thing to bring into your conscience is like what actually happened. So I think a lot of that backlash internally was just me using a mechanism to protect myself. Um, but in turn, I was, I was definitely hurting other people. What's interesting to me is that, you know, you talk about polar opposites and in, in the spectrum, but it's so interesting that it sounds like you at least thought you stayed completely on your side at the school. I mean, you ran away, you know what I mean? Like you ran away, but it's so interesting to me that even after running away from this experience, rejecting it in this way that you still went to this other side of like using the program against other survivors. I think that's like, I feel like you played the whole gambit of experience. So. Yeah. And well, and I think there's probably tons of different reasons for that. You know, there's like internal emotional reasons that it happened, but I think a lot of it too was, you know, in there, they really condition you to believe that you, as who you are, is not going to be accepted and isn't accepted. 
one by the world, but two also just by your actual friends and family, people who love you to death and care for you. So I think a lot of me trying to live up to those manipulations was me also trying to get reaccepted into my family, um, which I would later find that that's not that wasn't going to work the way I wanted it to anyway. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And I'm not I still don't know if I found a way <laughs> to completely <coughs> fix all of that. So. I think it, I think this is a work in progress. I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect that like once we start facing it and dealing with our own mental health and stuff that all of our relationships, especially these relationships that were involved in the trauma um are just going to resolve themselves. I think it's taken me years to get from like hating my parents to feeling sorry for them and feeling guilty for not being able to trust them and having to come and now I'm having to come to terms with that guilt, you know. Yeah. No. And I think that it's weird too, because, you know, like my, my relationship between my father and my mother are, are very drastically different. Um, and I, I couldn't tell you like pinpoint why exactly, but for, uh, for some reason, I, I don't know. I think it's just the way that we communicate. Me and my dad are able to communicate a little bit better and we're able to like, talk with each other and agree to disagree and not hold it against each other. And me and my mom just don't communicate as well. And I think there's just a lot of, um, my dad is a, is a much, he's just a very forgiving person and he's like very humble. And I don't know, like I, because of the way I was raised, I think I tend to stray away from Christianity and religion altogether. Um, but there's those few people, like if you were raised in that culture, you know, you're raised to believe that you're supposed to be Christ-like. And, and, and in that culture, there's a few, or, well, in my life, there's been a few people who I really feel like actually believe that they should try and be like Jesus. And, and he has shown me that there are true Christians out there, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily believe what he believes. I think that he has just shown me a really good example of like I said, how to be forgiving, compassionate and, and whatnot. And, and part of that comes with how much we communicate. And I think if me and my mom communicated a little bit more and knew how to communicate better, it probably would get better. But um, some of it comes down to that. And some of it comes down to just me holding a grudge. I, I genuinely believe I'm not sure why or what has caused me to believe this, but I think that it was more of her, say to put me there in that place and um yeah i don't know i i i'm not really sure why it's so drastically different um and i also am not sure why we can't get past it but i don't think we've like fully set on a good proper ground zero yet yeah, I think there's a lot of undoing and accepting like a- accountability and then also them accepting the reality of the reality instead of their view of what happened and what the school was. Um, I've had this conversation with my sister since she's listened to the podcast and we both agreed that it's imperative that my father not find out the truth because his old, you know, Marine PTSD ass would definitely have a heart attack and die if he actually accepted the truth about where they sent us, you know? Yeah, no, and and that's like, I've had to go back and forth inside my head, you know, of playing the blame game, but then also coming to terms with 
people are people and nobody makes the right choices all the time. And, and the fact that, you know, I, I will sit here and acknowledge that I was heavily manipulated in that school. And for me to sit here and not acknowledge that my parents were equally manipulated, is just insane. Um, not to mention you like, they, I, I'm afraid for, for my parents to hear everything that I saw, everything that happened. I don't want them to, it's, it's, it's this weird push pull. Cause it's like, I want them to know because I want them to understand and I want them to acknowledge it. But at the same time, I don't want to put that pain on somebody else. Like, I don't want, it's, it's weird. It's like, I want my mom to acknowledge that it was wrong and have a guilt attached to that. But I also do not want her to feel pain or guilt because she did it. And it just leaves me in this weird middle ground of like, yeah, you should know, but I don't want to tell you. And realistically, you shouldn't know because I don't, I don't know if you can handle it or not. I don't want to find out if you can handle it or not. Um, and as much as I go through phases of, of wanting to blame you, the fact is, is it's not your fault. You know, um, the, the, one of the main reasons that I am here on this podcast and why I do a lot of the things that I do is because I firmly believe not just to mention the times, you know, I was sent there in 2008. Um, not that the internet was like not here yet, but just, information that we are putting out now like like you guys' troubled podcast the icu survivor the breaking code silence all this information was not widely there you know they they couldn't just google and be like oh this place actually has horrible reviews you know um so yeah i mean i struggle with pushing blame every day um but i try like there's a voice inside me that tries to just be like yo it's like they're just people and they thought they were doing the right thing because how many of us have not been in the situation where we genuinely think we're doing the right thing and then it comes back to bite us in the ass. I hear you on that struggle. The biggest trouble for me with the struggle, the push pull is that the, the 17 year old girl who is telling them that they're abusing kids here and they need to help us and begging them not to leave me with these abusers and that 17 year old kid who like, I can still feel how much I f like fuck my parents can go fuck themselves. Like they can really mm -hmm. just fuck off for the, like, because it's, it's unfathomable. What we went through is unfathomable. The other side is like my parent, like for your parents to send us there, then not believe us, pay for it. And then for a decade after, for a lot of us, myself included, continue to agree with our abusers, reinforce that and utterly gaslight us um, is surreal and it's in, it's insane and I'm pissed about it. Like it's not the me now that's pissed. I'm pissed that we have to figure out how to make it easier for other people to accept what they allowed to and paid to happen to us as children. Um, I think it sucks. I'm a parent and that, but that's why I understand it now because if this happened to my 14 year old, I would literally go on a killing spree and kill myself. Like yeah. I would lose my mind like completely. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think a lot of that probably ties into me not being a parent right now. You know, I don't, I don't know how much of it directly is, you know, all linked, but when I went like, 
mind you, so just to, to come full circle with a little bit of my story, I'm married to the girl that I was dating when I got shipped away to the school. Um, we were just as in love then as we are now. I mean, well, no, we're probably more in love. It's just different because we're not 16. Um, but when I, I was, you know, I had my whole life planned out with her before I went there and, and being a father was definitely one of those aspects. And I just don't know if it would ever be possible for me to do that. And if, it, if I do, I'm not sure if it would be possible for me to do it in the way that I want to. But then again, I guess that's the whole mystery of just parenthood. I, I really wouldn't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, and it's really difficult. It's really difficult to try and explain it to our parents too, because, or just anybody, you know, most, most human beings have never, and, and I really don't, this sounds extreme, but I, I do not say this loosely. Most human beings have never had the sensation of losing full control. And, and until you do, you don't really know how scary that is. And, and this is one way I'll try to explain it. If you've ever been in like an accident, like you've ever been in a car accident or even like as a kid wrecked a bike or, or if you ever like fell off a ladder or just, just think of a scenario like that, that moment, that, that split second moment where, where, you know, everything's about to go wrong and you have no control on how to stop it. That, that if you can like visualize and, and like feel that fear, that split second fear, and then imagine a child living in that for well over a year, some children, three years, like think, think about that. Like think about literally having no control over your own human rights, like zero control. Like as an adult, that scares me. And I think that's really, I mean, obviously like politics are crazy right now. So I think a lot of us have a sense of that fear of like, Oh, we're all, we're all going to lose control of, of our freedoms and this and that. Well, imagine a child, like literally physically losing all of that control. And not only that, but the, the few, the, the people that are there, our parents and, and who are supposed to be protecting us, not believing any of our stories or, or even believing that we don't have the control, you know, they were lied to and painted this picture. And not only were they lied to by the school, but us as students were trained to lie to our parents. You know, um, you come into that school and you're not allowed to have contact with the outside world, not even your family for the first, depending on when you were there for the first 30 to, to 60 days, it really depended. Um, and it also depended on your behavior, you know. My first phone call lasted a whole two minutes and then I got banned from the phone for who knows how long because I tried to tell my parents the truth. And staff hung up the phone and said that you're not going to tell your parents that. And that happened, that happened with my first letter too. I was writing home. I wrote a letter. I wrote that I wasn't happy. I wasn't having fun. And uh, I thought this place was evil and I didn't, you know, I knew I made mistakes, but I didn't think I deserved this. And, you know, that, that, that letter got ripped up and I got coached through the first letter that my parents, like every letter my parents read that I wrote from that school was what they wanted me to say. It wasn't what I, I never got. If you wrote what you actually wanted to say, that letter never got sent out. 
And that's even like just thinking about that. Like I've seen movies and TV shows where there's like weird hostage situations and it seems like so insane. But if I really look back, it's like I've been through some of that stuff. I just didn't think about it in the same scale. I have a lot I want to dig in on that and hopefully both of our ADHD brains, I don't know if you're ADHD, I just assume everyone who's smart is, um, <laughs> can, can get back to all of them. But because of what you just spoke on was the watching this, like those sci-fi dystop- dystopic things where like the Handmaid's Tale and Black Mirror and, and things of that nature, um, where it's completely surreal because it rips people outside of like the regular bounds of like this makes sense for the world um that's like that's a really real thing i try to i don't think that verbally it's very easy for us to explain the feeling of being i think you did a really great job where you're like when you're locked in that moment that's like a year of complete adrenaline and fight or flight that makes sense but it's really hard to explain to them i think that hopefully when people watch things like Handmaid's Tale or these things that blow their fucking mind, if then they switch it into children and realize that that's happening all over the U.S., like that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, and and I think, and so an interesting personal story to kind of, I don't know. So, so me and my wife, I, I can't remember the movie. I want to say it was called The Room or something like that. Okay. It's about like a girl that is abducted and she's locked in a room she literally like has a child and lives with the child in the room. But me and my wife like watched it probably almost a year ago. And we were just like talking, we were, it was weird because you're literally like watching this person live in full seclusion and being like trapped in this room and, and whatnot. And then her child also being a part of that, not really knowing anything else but that life. And I remember me and my wife were kind of talking about it after and I was just like, ah, it's crazy, you know, like, it's just crazy to like, look at that perspective. And, and like, not to throw my wife under the bus at all, but like, she, um, she like kind of made like a, a, a smirky comment, like, oh, you know, yeah, well, like, as women, like, that's, it's, it's reality, you know, like, this, this happens in real life and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just, and, and for a second, I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, that's something I don't think about. But then I, like, really thought about it. It's just like, wait a second. No, I, 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 I do know what it's like. I know what it's like to be abducted. I know what it's like to be locked in a scenario that you can't get out of. I know what it's like to feel completely helpless. And, like, for a second, I almost got pissed off at her. Just like, how dare you think that only women can feel that feeling, feel that fear. Um, but I, I don't know. Uh, that just came to that as you were explaining that that just came to me because um i just remember that being like a breaking point or at least for me it was a breaking point of realization that like there's so many prevalent stories that that people find emotional but i never like related those types of stories to my own personal experience yeah well and per your point about us uh the feminine perspective um, being like an immediate go-to for the kinds of, you know, power, like power dynamics that are completely out of control. Um, that obviously applies to children. And in our own world in survivor land, we've talked about this, our male counterparts are underrepresented. And then they also have disproportionate access to mental health. 
And they're also disproportionately bowing out. They're, you know, it's, they're being overcome instead of overcoming um, at an incredibly horrific rate. And we've had that with our own classmates, um, but, you know, on a big scale as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's different. And it's really weird in this culture. I mean, and especially like a couple of years ago, there's just like this big masculinity, masculinity, femininity, like trying to, trying to like blur those lines and, and, and this and that. It's just like, but, and, and it's not to denounce anybody, but the fact is, it's like men and women are different, you know, and especially on, on a society's base, like coming, being raised in the nineties, men and women are different, you know, and whether scientifically how different we are, the way we're taught to look at each other is always going to be a little bit different. You know what I mean? And, and I think more so just how the human brain works. I think how men raised in like the eighties and nineties, more of how we were wired to believe we're allowed to feel and think is kind of what gets in the way of that rather than just our brain. Like people will say, Oh, well, men don't have emotions like that. It's just like, no, men aren't allowed to have emotions like that. Like God, we have emotions you know what i mean it's a, it's a human brain but i think a lot of us you know coming up in whatever culture we were you know i came up in sports and wrestling and football and a lot of masculinity and like men don't cry type scenario you know um and i think for people that have gone through situations like this just that concept is is murderous you know it's that's one of the things that affects us differently you know we and, and I, I i don't want to say this and it be taken wrong because i know there's a lot of sensitivity around this subject but I, I i truly believe we as men have been trained to to not be allowed to heal and we're not allowed to talk about feeling powerless and like there, i don't know you just always have to be strong puff your chest up and walk through it and I think to a certain extent, there's actually a great benefit of that guy or girl. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a, there is a benefit of, of putting your head up and, and continuing forward. But if you don't at least acknowledge reality, I mean, any, any world that you create, if you don't acknowledge reality, it's not going to thrive. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of guys can relate to that, but specifically with like the young men who went through these kinds of social programming, these like behavior modification programs, at least for ours, I remember that if you're called up to the table, females, they're dirty lying horse sluts, you know, all this manipulative jazz. Um, But, and I've been talking with this with my female survivor friends and I'd love to get your take. But with my brothers, there was something horrifying about, and then there was also the, you're not a man. You know, you think you're a man, but you're not a man. You'll never be a man. You don't know how to be a man. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I, I don't know how that affected you guys because I, like I, that concept of murderous, I feel like they're murdering the ability to identify and engage in a healthy way with masculinity and being and feeling like a man. Yeah. No, I mean... They're, yeah, uh, like they're two different worlds, but they're not. It's the same thing. You know what I mean? Like the same crippling effect that those negative words, you know, had on all the girls, you know, 
being a man it, and, and, and maybe, I don't know. I don't know if every generation is like this, but that was a huge thing growing up. You know what I mean? It was like being a man, like there's, this is what defines it. If you're not this, you don't fit. And then when you are constantly not one, you're constantly kind of coached into not believing that you are that, but then also additionally coached into believing that you're probably never going to be that. Um, and just drilling that into your head, even, even the strongest minded person eventually is going to get worn down. Um, and I don't know. I mean, there was, I, it's weird. It's weird how we participated in the moment of that school kind of to protect ourselves. Because I remember situations just like you were speaking of where, you know, a girl's up at the table and, and she's getting called a slut. And if she leaves, she's probably going to be given blowjobs on the street and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, yeah, actually that girl literally just like got caught smoking weed under the bleachers. Like, you know, like she, she wasn't, she wasn't pouring herself out for meth. You know what I mean? Um, but that the, the same way they did those put downs, they would do the same thing with guys and say like, Oh, like, you know, you've, you've thrown yourself away and you will never be able to be a man and take care of a family the way that men are supposed to and blah, blah, blah. And realistically, like you should be thanking God you're here because otherwise you'd be in jail. And, you know, I don't know it. It's, it's really weird. And it, it, I don't even, I, I don't know how to pinpoint. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to pinpoint it, but it, I don't know. There's so many things there that shouldn't have been prevalent and shouldn't have been talked about and, and didn't actually make sense, but they became, they became our truths. And I think that's definitely one of the things that I saw happen to me that probably is still affecting me today. I don't know. Maybe I just, maybe I just had a change in heart and I don't, you know, my, my vision of who I was is or who I wanted to be when I was 16 and now are different. Obviously that's going to be a thing, but I think there are definite, there's definitely, definitely things that happened there and things that were said to me that made me completely reconsider any plans that I had as an adult. Um, and the same way girls were shamed sexually and, and stuff like that, just in, in public in front of all of us. I mean, guys would get brought up to the table and, and it was almost like this, this game, this sadistic game. Cause like, if you pissed somebody off, like say you pissed somebody off in your family, like I pissed off my sponsor or whatever, I could have got brought up to the table on a complete lie. Like, Oh, Wes is getting brought up to the table because he's been talking about this girl and he keeps masturbating in the, in, in the dorms and blah, blah, blah. And like just blatantly make up stories to embarrass us in front of the other sex in the family. Um, I don't know. There was just a lot of demasculating stuff that happened and not even just demasculating, but like kind of just dehumanizing. Well, I'm wondering from your perspective, because you've talked to a lot of our brothers, Tom and whatnot, have you guys ever talked about it? Do you think that this kind of attack on like the intrinsic manhood of these young men, has it affected your ability to speak out or address it or look at it personally? I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know. 
guys that I talk to from the school don't talk about the school the way that I'm talking about it now and probably never will. And I, and I think part of that is, see, it's this weird, it's this weird, like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like not a double negative, but it's almost like all that demasculate mask, whatever it's called. Like when they're, when they're saying those things to us, some of these guys like kicked it into high gear when they left and they became super machos, you know? And like, those are the guys that I was like, Oh man up, take responsibility for your own actions and blah, blah, blah. Like just all the manipulation getting spewed out of our own mouths. Now, you know, most, most of the guys that I talk to still from the school, um, don't, yeah, they just don't acknowledge it in this, in this form. And if you do acknowledge this and if you do acknowledge it in this form, then, then for lack of better terms, you're being a pussy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple, there's a couple things I want to make sure we touch on, but I do want to circle back to the union with the wife. So before you came into the school, um, I mean, were you whoring around or was this like a monogamous relationship? Was this your first love? What's up? No, I mean, so I, like, as far as me and my wife, like, I mean, I'll try and tell most of the story with like I this could turn into a seven hour podcast if I tell our whole story. I know, um, I know. But like I've been thinking about this so much and you guys have this like fairy tale of a of a story here. So like yeah, tell um, me. Well, so so we we met under the the least fairy tale of circumstances. Um I believe she was fifteen and I was sixteen. Or something like that. Uh, my best friend, who was actually my my best man in our wedding, um, my best friend was dating her best friend, and her best friend passed passed away in a car accident. And I, I actually met her, and I saw her for the first. Well, I might have seen her before, but I like really saw her for the first time uh, at that funeral. And I think that's kind of like oddly enough, that's where we fell in love. Um. And there's this common thing back then and probably still today. I don't know. I'm not around young kids enough to, to really know, but people tell you, you can't be in love at that age. Um, and we mm -hmm. took that as a challenge, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> because I don't know. I, and, and I think part of this is how I was raised and how my, how my dad kind of taught me by example of, of what love really is you know, I, I stuck, my, I stuck to my guns on it. Like I knew what I felt and I had a plan and, you know, I knew that I wanted to be with her. Like I literally made my mind up when I, rem I can, I can remember pulling into that church parking lot for the funeral and looking at her and being like, yep, that's her forever. You know? Um, and I think it, it's, you know, by, divine intervention, chance, whatever you want to call it, things were bad enough for me at home um, that I eventually, you know, kind of got pushed out of my home at 16. Like I ended up moving out of my parents' house because of issue after issue, you know, a lot of it, you know, I'm a teenager getting into trouble. I'm not going to sit here and say I was an angel. Um, but all in all, yeah, I ended up moving out of my house. And when I was 16, I moved in with my wife and her mom. Um, 
So we had, I don't want to call it an adult relationship because, you know, her mom's paying the bills and, and this and that. Like, it's not like we were like taking care of our household, but we were living together and functioning and sleeping together and, and living more as a married couple than I'm sure most 16 year olds ever, ever do. Um, and it was just a very intense that 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 part that part of our lives was a very intense fairy tale relationship. I mean, it was a beautiful thing. Like we were inseparable. Um, if she went like anything she did, I was I was following her around like a dog, and uh, it was great. Like I wouldn't have I I literally wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, and and mind you, like so Sydney's Sydney's mom and dad are separated, and at the time. You know, because I, I, I didn't really know her dad that much and he wasn't really a part of her life at that point in time. Um, I was ve- I got a very one sided story of that relationship, you know, so I commonly sided with her mom. Um, but, you know, the way I looked at it, it was, you know, her dad walked away and left a pretty big stain on her impression of relationships and what they can and should look like um so i i almost felt a duty to prove to her that that love does exist and men can stick around um and you know sure enough who knows how many years later here we are um but yeah i think i think something that really damaged her because so i was living with her when I got escorted to the school, um, I had, I had dropped out of high school. I was going to a secondary school or like, I don't know what everybody calls them. It's pretty much if you drop out, we had, we had a school in the mall where was, that was fairly unsupervised and they gave us cigarette breaks and pretty much that just meant we were going to go out to our cars and smoke weed. And, you know, um, it was just not a normal school situation. And I remember I didn't really have contact with my family, but my dad always made it a point to stay in contact. And he would, sometimes he would take me to school and this and that. And I I just remember the one morning it being very different. Um, My dad picked me up and he said, yeah, I'm going to go. We we lived right beside a Turkey Hill, which is like a gas station. He's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to pull in Turkey Hill and get a drink. And he was like over explaining what he was doing. And I, thought something was kind of fishy and we pulled into the gas station and he parked in like a really weird spot nowhere near the gas station entrance and I was like confused and I looked over and he was just bawling his eyes out and I'm like all right well something's going on um, and then I turned to my right and of course there's you know two dudes in trench coats outside my door um, I don't remember exactly what unfolded there uh, I know it was intense. I'm surprised the cops weren't called for the scene that was made. I, I think I may have swung at my dad and I think I may have tried to jump in his back seat and get out the back door. I got like ripped out by my ankle, ended up getting like cuffed and thrown in the back. Um, I don't really remember the rest, but, but to bring this full circle of the relationship, like here I am another guy just completely abandoning my wife 
you know, not, not that it was intended to be that way, but, you know, to a girl that was raised with a, with an, with an absent father and struggling to believe that any guy's going to stick around here. I am being the one person that's trying to prove that wrong and just helplessly being removed from the situation. Um, so I think a lot of the time that I was in the school suffering, she was doing her own suffering at home. Um, and I, for, for a good long while, it drastically changed her personality and who she was, I think, um, changed the course of what she was doing. You know, I was always the, in the relationship, you know, like I'm the one that would smoke weed and get messed up in this. And it's like, it's not like I was doing it as a drug addict. Like I was a teenager going to parties, having fun, you know what I mean? But she was always a little bit more of the, just kind of didn't need all that to have fun type of girl. Like, yeah, she would drink wine. Um, but of course, fast forward a couple years later, I come home and I don't know if she was fully active in it at this point, but long story short, she became a very, and I, I hope she doesn't disagree with me speaking on this because she's been pretty open with it. Um, you know, she got very heavily addicted to heroin. Um, I, th I think that when I was, when I got taken away, she just felt abandoned and kind of went off. Um, being, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to use the wrong terms and make her sound bad because she's a beautiful human being, but she definitely had a patch of, of, of a mindset and, and, and activities that I'm sure she looks back and is just like, holy crap, you know, like that, that's like, that's, that's that character you see on TV. Like you watch like any like sitcom show, there's always going to be that one friend that was like the bad seed. And like, I think she quickly kind of became that she became a party girl anything she could do to kind of like numb out and quiet the voices, you know, because I had just abandoned her out of nowhere. Um, and it took a long time, you know, me coming, when I ran away from the school, I came to find her right away and she was with another guy. And I actually like drove to, I drove like an hour and a half to another town because I heard she was going to be at some part, some college party and I get there. Apparently she found out I was there. I don't know if she she knew I was there or what, but she ended up leaving before I got to see her. Um, and then we like got back together and didn't, we were on and off again, on and off again. And then eventually I realized she had a drug problem and then us fighting in the relationship and trying to make things worse or trying to make things work, ended up making things worse. And, you know, she pretty much lost full control. Um, and I just kept hanging on. I kept like just trying to like be persistent. And I think that was also hurting her too, because I'm just like trying to ram clarity down her throat. Um, and she just didn't want to hear it. I remember like one specific time we were at like a bar in town here. And she, she told me, she's like, Hey, I want to see you and I want to try and make things work and blah, blah, blah. And it felt really good. Like it felt really sincere. I wanted to go see her and I go see her and she like passes out at the table because she's all doped up and i mean i'm surprised i'm even allowed in that bar again after how i exploded um but that was the last time i saw her for probably i think that was in like 20 
2010 or 2011. And I don't think I saw her again until 2016, maybe 20, yeah, probably 2016. Um, and my, my band was playing, my band at the time was playing uh, a show in New Jersey. And I guess she lived in a halfway house outside of Philadelphia. Um, and it was just like the weirdest thing. I like showed up the show and like, there's, there's Sydney and she looked great. Like she was clearly sober and doing well. And, um, I th I was actually dating a girl at the time, like not very seriously, but I just started dating a girl at the time. Um, I was on tour with my band and I think we had a few dates left on the tour and and I just, I did, I went in and I talked to guys. I'm like, look, I know it sounds really crazy and I'm, I'm sorry, but tour's over. Uh, I'm not, you guys can take the van home. I'm not going home. I'm going to hang out with this chick. We're going to, you know, make up some old time here. Um, and she, I think she had a boyfriend at the time too. And uh, yeah, we just like hung out and I, you know, we didn't like hook up or anything. I didn't want to. I didn't want to have that type of thing happen. Like I didn't want her to cheat on her boyfriend or whatever. Um, but it was a matter of, it was a matter of weeks before we had both split with our current relationships and she was planning to move back into my house. Um, and then my band went on another full U S tour and she moved into my house while I was gone, literally. And then I came back and it was, pretty like the, the life that I got pulled out of when we were 16, just kind of picked up right then and there. Um, I think within like a year of that we were engaged and within another year we're married and here we are with three dogs in a house, you know? So um, for like, if anyone listening is missing out on why uh, the Wes and Sydney story is so powerful to a lot of us, it's because you guys aren't the only ones, you know, so super quick. I can relate to you incredibly hard. I went to a Catholic girls school. So all the guys I knew were at the Catholic boys school. Um, and I'm a tomboy. So I'm hanging out with all the guys. So I knew my first love since freshman year, but I, I, I did, we decided we started like turning it from a friendship to whatever at my best friend's best friend's funeral. You know, uh, we sat next to each right. other at the funeral. I comforted him. And then all the guys spent the night at my best friend's house, which is where I was kind of living and eventually moved out at 16 and lived with my best friend there. Um, so like I completely relate. And I think there's a lot of us when we talk about like the relational trauma that survivors from these kinds of things get from being ripped out of these very significant bonded attached uh, attempts at safe, secure, stable relationships. Um, and then especially if it's like your first love. And I, I agree when I was, um, you know, trying to talk to outside people right before I got sent to the family school when I was at uh, the children's fairy, whatever, psych eval shit. I talked to people and they were like, I was freaking out about my like first love guy. Like all the poetry I had that I wrote there that I'd recently been reading is all about him and like God not letting this one safe relationship be ripped out from underneath me. Like once I'm finally believing in people <clears throat> and stuff like that. And they were all like, it's okay. Like, I know it feels really intense and really real now, but like nobody stays with their first love and you know, it's not what love really is anyways, kind of a thing. You're just like in love. It's puppy love. But 
my first love was real. I had a whole life planned and I firmly believed in that life. And so I used him as like this thing to cling on to while I was at the school. You know, like I had his T-shirt. I snuck it in his contraband and slept with it and smelled it every night and stuff. Um, and I saw him the day after the day I got out on my birthday because I, I got out on my birthday. Um, my best friend and his mom had been waiting since midnight to pick me up. And he was just there to return my guitar, you know, um, and stuff and let me know that he had moved on and, you know, all this jazz. But the like the trauma of going through that experience and being separated from that person, I think that's what keeps so many of us from being able to have romantic relationships as adults. Well, yeah. And I think. Um... On, on top of just our personal effect. And, and this is something that I, I, I don't say to like, to shame my parents or to, to any, anybody, but like, not only was I affected, you know, by me being stripped from that, like the trickle effect of, of my friends and, and, and to Sydney when she was left here. Yeah. It didn't just affect me. It didn't just affect my family. It was, it was, a, and I, I don't say this to be conceited, but like me being pulled away was, it was a massive blow. Like I was a part of people's lives and I just got, I got stripped out of that, you know? Um, and, and I think it's interesting too. And, and um, this is like a little side tangent. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I think the, I think the, the picture of love is, is just heavily, heavily misconstrued in today's culture. And, and I don't say this to, to say that, I don't love my wife in a certain way, but, but I think it's very, very important to teach people that what you see in the movies is, is like, that's, that's less than 10% of a real relationship, you know? And there, I, I love my wife to death. And there's moments where, where you're not in, in a really good relationship or a bad one. Like there's moments you're not going to see that the same way. And there's moments that they're not going to look as spectacular to you. And that's just any human being in any relationship. And I, I truly believe that as much, as much as love is like this chemical attraction and, and like this desire and this and that, I think it's also a very cognitive choice. You know, there's, it, it, it's a stubbornness. L love is about deciding that you're going to wait to feel that again, because in, it doesn't matter how beautiful things look to the outside you know, everything goes up and down, everything comes in and out. And love is about when it's down, being able to see that there is a tip of a mountain again to, to, to go to. And when it's up to realize that this is great, but it's not always going to be this great. And if it's not always this great, that doesn't mean we're failing. Um, and I think that's something that I have to reteach myself every day. And I think it's really important. I think that would be like, like if I could teach one thing about love to people and I might be completely wrong, but I'd be willing to take that risk. I think that would be it is that true love is, is a conscious desire to be stubborn and to stick to your guns about making up your mind. You know, I, 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 I think one thing that that's kind of related to this, that the school showed me is that realistically, if you really want to, you could probably get along with every, anybody, you know, we are, we were, people from all different types of cultures getting thrown into this melting pot and forcibly or non-forcibly, we all kind of found a way to get along. Um, I think 
part of me believes that there is one true person for people, you know what I mean? And like, there's this divine, you know, this is the person for me, but I, there's also a, a logical, more like, I don't know, whatever way of thinking where I think that I, the reason why me and Sydney are still together is because I choose every day to be with her, whether it's the best day or the worst day that we've had. Um, and I, I don't know, I think people think, I can't tell you how many times in relationships that I've had like friends chirping in my ear, like, oh, dude, this sucks. Like, just ditch it. You know what I mean? Just like, well, yeah, but like everything's going to suck sometimes. You know what I mean? Um, it's like anything you do, anything you work towards in your life. Like if you're working towards a job or a promotion or whatever, there's going to be days that you're, you're doing things really well and you're at a high and you feel so good about what you're doing. And then the next day you might make one mistake and want to give up. Like that's just, it's literally anything that you're working towards. And I think people think love is supposed to be this, like, you know, somebody comes and twinkles pixie dust over your heads and you just are forever blushing at each other. And it's just, it's, <laughs> it's a completely false narrative, you know, of what it is. And that maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's just my opinion. No, I, t I think that is a false narrative. I th that's ridiculous. Um, but you're right. That is what's sold. And. And we could go on and on about the conditioning, the Disney princess, like <laughs> rescue bullshit, murdering everybody's parents um, and all that jazz, you know, um, you, but, you know, with Sydney in particular, I think it's funny when you're like, it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks from the outside world. I just want to like, let everyone know this is the man who's married to a woman who is super beautiful on the outside and from the outside, it seems on the inside as well. Um, and so I think it's, even more tragic i'm not sure that i'd thought about the collateral damage that these schools and these experiences of abducting human beings from a society that they're engaging with and engaged to um and the effects it can have i mean i mean this potentially and i i think probably did cause sydney's drug addiction and that's horrific she's such a beautiful sensitive soul and for this kind of trauma you know, I mean, it had, it wasn't her fault at all. Like this, she didn't deserve it. This should never have happened. Yeah. And, and I can't sit here and say like, Oh, percent. That's why she did what she did the same way. I can't sit here and say that if I like, if I never went to this school, if I never heard of this place, would I be who I am today? Like I, you can't say that for certain, but I, I firmly believe that had I not been, th there's two things that I believe tying into that. I believe that had I never been sent to that school, that I would have grown up and learned how to fix myself regardless. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it. Like, so I had like a group of four, it was me and three other friends. And like, we all, you know, we were mischiefs and we all did crazy stuff. I, I personally think I did some of the lesser of the crazy stuff. And I always seem to be the one that got in trouble. So I get sent away to this place. And, you know, as an adult, we learn to fix ourselves slowly and surely. And we also learn to accept that there's some things we can't fix. I think without the school, I would have gotten there because I can see my friends that were just as crazy as I was at times or even crazier did that for themselves without the school, you know. So I can't sit here and say, oh, this would have happened or this wouldn't have happened. But not, but I, I do truly believe that with without me being sent there, that she wouldn't have gone down the path that she would have. I, part of me, there's, there's also an alternative to that. Part of me thinks that we would have been more fairy tale for longer. Reality wouldn't have struck in the same way it did. And maybe, maybe we wouldn't be together right now. I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, 
maybe you know that that story that i spoke of when when i walked away from her in the bar and i didn't see her for five years had that five-year absence never happened i don't know if we would be married right now i think it was essential it was essential for both of us to grow up as individuals you know and, and had that not happened i don't know but hey who knows you know maybe maybe like literally we would have been a disney movie you know i don't know i can't sit here and say either way well i can safely say that you guys are better than a disney movie and i think for those of us like myself if only myself but i highly doubt it that are like really scarred and really traumatized and really not even interested in engaging in romantic relationships because what was stolen from me and you know my ability to like even trust in it um knowing you and like hearing what i've heard about your marriage is is kind of healing i think it's collectively healing for all of us who had that stolen and you know tried to you know you talk about the cognitive dissonance where you stood up for the school i think a lot of us that were told you don't really love your first love when you're 16 17 years old and you'll just get over it we tried to like believe that and kept us from doing the real work we needed to do with how like you know big a, like a gaping wound that can be on someone's psyche like i know that there's people who are like that's so trivial that your teenage boyfriend got ripped away from you or your teen but no no seriously like don't you remember being a teenager and how serious your friends were how serious that first there was the intensity hormonally if you just want to look at scientifically right of being a teenager with all those hormones it's your whole world your band is your whole world your skateboarding is your whole world these things are like fundamentally important and then you're literally like abducted by aliens and then verbally emotionally mentally abused and then per the handmaiden so have to watch everyone around you be abused and maybe even participate in to, well, I mean, you, everybody participated to some extent you know like that shit's like legit yeah well and and that's interesting too because right, so like i remember my first table topic like my first table topic ever like the first two weeks there i didn't participate in the school whatsoever i literally cried in the corner like i did not eat i did not i didn't participate my first table topic was about sydney and they're like oh so you uh so you're in love right i'm like yeah and they're like no <laughs> you're 16. you know that doesn't doesn't happen like that and uh i was like no well yeah well that's fine we're different that's fine you can tell me whatever you want to tell me and i and i remember i don't remember which staff member said this um but i remember somebody chiming in saying you know she's she's fucking your friends right now dude okay dude pause before they literally that's that's standard my first table topic was so you have this boyfriend you're in love right and it was literally the, and you know he's probably like fucking your friends right now literally yeah oh yeah they do that to all of us no, how and, many of us are fucked up go go oh no, I well, and, and that wasn't just one table topic that was an ongoing thing until yeah, i left like they they wanted to they wanted to to get in my head that she was gone i should forget about her mm -hmm. because she forgot about me and that i and i kept telling them like no this is different you know I'm, me too I, I know you don't understand but this is different and like they they wouldn't give up and i wouldn't give up you know um and it, it's really interesting uh and that comes back to me you know that comes back to my stubbornness i guess you know because re the reality sets in when i leave and and some of that was true you know what i mean thing same th things had gone south you know um but I, that didn't i don't know i i wasn't really i wasn't ready to throw in the towel so i kept 
kept trying, kept trying different ways, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it worked out for you. It didn't work. I tried different ways too. Um, so I went to the girls' school and he went to the boys' school. But when I got back for like the last three months of senior year, this kid had ditched the boys' school and now he's in my public school too. And he's dating the girl who used to be like, oh, do you date him? La, la, la. And I was like, stay away from my boyfriend. Yeah. Well, they're dating and they're like the class favorites because she's a sports hero and he's like everybody's favorite super cool artist guy who everybody loves because he's amazing. He is. He's an amazing human being. I had excellent taste. And then I legitimately, <laughs> like at prom, I legitimately collected like 300 ballots and voted for myself as most unique at prom so I could be in the prom court, like just so he'd know. Yeah. Ridiculousness. Yeah. Continue. Continue. Well, I'm, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting because you said something about like, I don't, I don't remember exactly what you said. You said something, you, you commented on like me and Sydney's relate, relationship and, and our romantic relationship and that's something that is an extremely sensitive subject for me um and it's like this is like weird and, and hard to talk about but i'm just gonna shut up and do it like so me and sydney when, when we're 16 you know like and this isn't to like i'm not trying to like war story or anything but like we were heavily in love heavily romantic you know what i mean probably had sex four times a day you know Same. um it, you know, it was, I'm, I mean, I've never seen any of those sex novel movies, but I'm sure whatever those cool things look like, that's probably what we looked like. And it's so strange because in my mind, I can still think of things that way. And I can still think of her in that intense way, but there's something, and I don't know if this is the school or relationships that I've been through or whatever, there's, there's definitely a disconnect and there's, there's uh i would let me try and put it this there's a percentage of me that i want to be able to give her and show her that i can't access and i i don't know how or why i can't access it because i love her more than anything i want to like you know i want i don't know like i want to be more and i want to be more romantic and i want to show her love more but it's like there's some disconnect that doesn't allow me to do that. And, and I feel miserable because I know she deserves that love, but there's some, it's not that I don't love her, but there's something inside of me that does not allow me to be intimate the same way that I, that I could have before. Um, like literally like there's, there's an off switch on my personal intimacy. Um, and I'm not saying that's all the time, you know what I mean? But, and, and and part of this too is I, I I run through this push pull in my head like well how much of this is actually just reality, and I'm thinking that our relate relationship should look like a '90s sitcom and like all these '90s sitcoms you see like let's take like uh, everybody loves Raymond for example like almost every show every episode they when they're going to bed they're like making out at night in the bed and like you know there's like this there's this intimacy that's painted for us and this romanticism that's painted for us. And I'm not living up to that, you know, and I don't know if anybody actually is, but regardless of that, I still feel like I should probably be, uh, I don't know. I, I have a desire and I have a vision of how I should be treating her and, and the love I should be showing her. But then when it comes to the action, it's like my brain completely shuts off. 
and I, I dissociate from myself and from her. And like, it sucks because it's not fair to her at all. Um, but I couldn't even sit here and tell you how I would begin to fix it. You know, I, I try and literally focus on it and like, I don't know. It's, it sounds weird because it sounds like, it sounds like I'm trying to love her, but it's like, I, it's not that like, I love her regardless. I'm trying to take what's inside of me and show her because I just can't it, for some, I was very good at that before and, and now I'm not, and I don't know why, but yeah. I, I, I relate to that hard. <clears throat> I call it my intimacy firewall and it extends to everything. My dog, my kid. Um, I have, I have a lot of shame around it with my kid because as a mother, I'm supposed to be able to like intimately feel the can I love my daughter. Like she is literally a mirror child of me. Like it's everything. Like if any, like I can't even, you know, but there is an emotional like engagement. It's there's like a firewall up for me with every human being that exists. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out, but I haven't, I think this is part of what we deal with. And I don't think either of us are there yet to even like understand what's going on so i'm not sure that we can like deprogram that firewall just yet yeah i don't know and, and that's like a really cool term to put it at like a firewall because that's that's like really what it is you know like there's a fire on the other side of it and um i know it's there you know i just don't know how to access it properly and i don't know i mean like there and like i said like me and sydney have been together long enough that even like, like, I don't know, like our friends, they look at us a certain way and they, they view our relationship a certain way. And, and trust me, thank you. You know what I mean? It, it feels good to have people look at something that you're involved with and say, that's cool. You know what I mean? But at the same time, and I don't mean this to downplay our, our love. Like it's not, it's not picture perfect. And I, and, and this is a thing too, and, and I don't want to speak on her behalf, but I think me getting sent to the family school as well as just what she went through with her dad. I think we, we don't really talk about this stuff that often. We don't, we don't really talk about it a lot, honestly. We, uh, I'm like, we're just both extremely content, always just kind of being around each other. Um, but I think a lot of the same things I struggle with, she struggles with. It's not that we don't feel for each other. There's just this disassociation with intimacy because of the trauma that we've been through. And I think we both have an off switch that we don't know how we don't know where it is. We don't know how to turn it back on when we need to. Um, but I also think that we have, we have talked about it in our marriage and, and we've, we have both made efforts to try and be more intimately present with each other. Um, and I, I think it's working. It's, it's not perfect. You know what I mean? Um, but I think it has been getting better. And, and a lot of that is really, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about it because if I think about 16 year old me and how I think about our intimacy then to think that that would ever become work, it, it just sounds baffling. And it almost sounds like because of how I was raised, that almost makes me feel like I'm speaking bad against her. But I, that's like, that's not what I'm trying to do. And that's not, it's not how I feel. I think this is just the reality of our situation. And I, I, I really do think a lot of it has to do with 
the things that we went through, like us getting torn apart like that at a young age at such a dire moment really affected our mentalities and, and how our brains operate and how we receive and fire off these signals, you know. Speaking of the specific kind of traumas from the family school relationally and, and for you in particular, I don't know if you're comfortable talking on it, but, and I'm, I'm sure because of you, we talked about it briefly, but you saw that we did an episode on the music man um, mm-hmm. from the family school. Yeah. So that stuff, a lot of my brothers were in the music man's magical sexaholics group. And uh, do you want to speak on what you know about that? Like that's got to have an impact on young guys, especially one that's like actually in love with his girlfriend. Yeah. I mean, so I was put in sexaholics anonymous because, because my mom like wrote in my whatever, you know, Oh, he's, you know, he's got a sex problem because he admits to us that he sleeps with this girl and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, you know, the girl you live with yeah it's like no actually i just yeah. freaking fell in love you know what i mean it's like don't want to think about it but you and dad probably did that at some point too you know what i mean um so Gross. so yeah, yeah i got i got like thrown into that situation which like let, let's be realistic what 16 year old teenager going through hormones is not a sexaholic like i mean guilty you know what i mean it's just like if mm-hmm. you never had candy and somebody gives you chocolate you're going back for more you know um so but anyway so that that, i don't think i was like really a a sex addict by any means you know like sex is fun clearly you know what i mean as a 16 year old boy finding new things you know it's fun you know what i mean and you you loved her but also you loved her so it's not like you were just like humping someone like between periods all day at school it's like you're actually in a relationship yeah no and and i don't know so that that's that's why i ended up in that class right wrong or indifferent um and i i can't remember i'm sure you understand the blur that i'm speaking of when it is the memories of that place like i i can't remember a lot of these memories come back to one memory so i can't tell you if i was in that class every week I can't tell you if I was in that class every month. I can't tell you if I went to that class once, you know, like I know I went once because I remember a very specific, I don't know why I remember this one specific story. If I, I don't know if I should even bother to tell it or not. Um, Do it. But I remember one specific story in that class and I'm sure that class happened more than once. Um, So yeah. regardless of of whatever like i i have heard stories of the music man you know since i've left the school and like i was in that phase where i was naysaying everybody so i didn't wasn't sure if i believed him but if i like really look back and look at his character and look at the way he spoke to people and and not only was i in his sexaholics anonymous class but i was part of the stage crew for all the musicals so i was around him very frequently um, and I would sit behind the music board every single day and watch him train people in musicals and this and that. And, you know, he, he, if you know who we're talking about, you take one look at him. And, and I don't mean to say this to, to sound like a prick, but like, you know, when you can look at people and you know there's something going wrong inside of them. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He wore that. He wore that very, very sh- strongly. Like there was something 
wrong with that guy. You could see it in his eyes. Um, so even just like watching him inquire and watching how he would, how he would treat girls, you know, it wasn't like he was like, for, for me personally, in the era that I was in that school, now I'm not saying that stuff that I didn't see didn't happen previously, or even while I was there behind closed doors, but he would just get a little risky, you know, like he'd be, I remember we were working on some play and he was talking about this girl singing and he kept trying to make a point with her, but he kept literally touching her breasts to like try and get her to straighten her back out. It's just like, Hey, uh, like most human beings would probably just touch her spine. Um, like little stuff like that would happen pretty frequently. Um, and I never, it's, it's so strange that I never really thought about it, but I never really thought about it. Um, so there's like that. And then just, so in Sexaholics Anonymous, it's for, for people who have been exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous culture, you know, it, it works the same way. You go into a meeting, you, you share your stories, you try and come out feeling better. But, you know, if you're in the wrong group of people, pretty much it ends up being a war story party where everybody's kind of indulging in each other's stories. Um, and the best way that I could explain the music man was he would salivate at the stories like an animal. Like he short of me seeing a boner in his pants was excited not only by our stories but also by telling us his stories and watching our reaction to them like i remember telling stories and looking up at him and the smile that was on his face was like he was saving that memory for later for himself and it was disgusting um and, and I, I don't, I don't want to say this to downplay it because the story I'm going to tell you that he told us that, that this is my vivid memory of that class. This is like my only extreme vivid memory of that class outside of, so two things there's, I have two memories of that class. I have this memory I'm going to tell you. And the second one, which I don't know if I can really elaborate on because I don't understand the points before and after, but I know at some point in that class, he got me to admit to rape like that I raped somebody and I know like now looking back, like I know I never raped somebody and I, you know, it's just, it's mind blowing. That just goes into the manipulation of how they would take stories that we said and they would turn us into the biggest devil in the room every single time. Like that is what the school did. Um, but we can jump back to that if, if necessary, but I remember like a movie him telling this one story where he said, you know, he was talking about how he related, he, he had a relationship between his sex addiction and his food addiction. And he knew he had hit rock bottom. Mind you, he still has that smirk on his face. Like, like when he was listening to us, like he's enjoying this. Um, but he told us a story of how he, he fell into his, uh, uh, what's the word? Like he fell into his temptations one time and, and he did the ultimate combination of his food and his sex uh, addiction. He combined them. And, and what he did was he went to McDonald's and he ordered a Big Mac and then sat in a parking lot and, and masturbated with his penis between the patties 
and masturbated on the Big Mac and then ate the Big Mac. And then like that became like a thing he would do on the regular. Um, but he didn't tell the story like he was ashamed of it at all. Like he told the story almost like he just wanted to see it's like he wanted to see us react and then he wanted to be able to look he he wanted to be able to go home and look at that and like feel good about it for some reason and i like i cannot begin to grasp or understand that concept like i don't know i just can't understand it um i don't understand the mindset and i don't want to begin to um but i think that was like one specific story that i remember and like it's looking back like it's like that's if, if you saw it on tv that is a, that's a comedy like you see a com- you, you 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 see a comedian on stage telling that story everybody's laughing but to sit there and feel the emotion of his eyes looking into your eyes and reading into his emotions while he's telling that that's the scariest thing the scariest thing is and I'm not saying that I can read minds or whatever, but we all have intuition and we can all, we all need to learn to trust ourselves and we can all kind of see things sometimes. And let me tell you what, I saw his evil while he was telling stories like that. Um, and I think not only that, but I saw that evil when he was listening to us tell stories because I'm not going to say, I don't know what he did and didn't do, but it would not surprise me one bit that after our Sexaholics Anonymous, um, what do you call them? Like our little group meetings, I would not doubt at all that he went and masturbated after because that's the type of body language he gave is that he was enjoying it and he was stockpiling that information. Yeah, so can duly confirm, I had heard the cheeseburger story at the school um, I, and also can confirm that this is that guy where literally the first time you ever see him in real life, you like already know, like you, he's just, you can just tell, um, everything about him tells children that like, he's like a candy man, kind of a scary shit. And I had seen the stuff that I had seen and been warned of was with females. And, um, I love the fact that you call it, you know, just a little thing that he's, touching these girls breasts and I don't mean to like make fun of it or anything I I think that's how we look at these things you know it's like well compared to what we know happened to other people what we've heard happen to other people a lot of the daily or normal stuff is just a little thing it's just kind of a normal part of our experience um but I hadn't realized that he'd been also accused of molesting boys and that you know I had Liz on the podcast Boysick um and she was she was the first female to file a New York Child Victims Act against him. Um, there are multiple male ones against him. So it's incredibly horrifying that he this predator has these children as prey where they're forced to like literally tell him what they and their loved ones, their girlfriends, you know, and whatever do so that he can create like this spank bank mm-hmm. um and then also use that spank bank to motivate him to abuse th- our peers around you well yeah and, and like i like also like i remember like telling stories and him stopping me mid-story and be like no dude don't don't leave that out make it spicy you know like he wanted to hear oh. everything you know um and it wasn't for my behalf 
You know what I mean? He wasn't telling me to give the details because it was going to make me feel better, you know? Um, And that's something that I have no proof of, but you just, there's certain things that you know in your heart of hearts that are just true. Um, Oh, backtrack. Yes. Backtrack. Did you get it? I think so. Um, Good. Yeah. So you were saying like, uh, you were saying like how in, in teen relationships, how it's, how it's so huge to us. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, like when you're in that, you're in that teen love relationship, it's so massive. You are like, the present is so present and important. You know what I mean? And I kind of relate that to, so I was in, uh, I was in Terry McCarthy's living skills class and I was also in his grief class. And I remember him saying one, there's one thing that stuck to me that, that I think is actually like amazing. And it was a beautiful point of realization. Um, he brought up to us, I'm going to try and tie this full circle, but I might get a little tangenty. Um, I remember one day, the first, we all came in and sat down and he wrote on the board babies. And it was just like, if you knew, if you knew Terry, you knew he did a lot of just like th- weird things in weird ways to get you to think. So he just wrote babies on the board. He did that thing where he stood in the corner of the room, rocked back and forth on his tiptoes. And then we were probably there for like five minutes and he just like pointed to the board. He's like, what do babies do? And we were just like, I don't, I don't know. They eat, they poop and they cry. He's like, they cry. Why do they cry? And we're like, I don't know. And he's just like, well, I'll tell you why. He said, babies cry at everything because at that moment, that's the worst thing they've ever had. You know, we, we, we were talking about grief and trauma. And he said, you know, he said, there's this huge problem where we all, we all try and compare our grief. We all try and compare our trauma. But the fact is, is that baby is crying just as loud as a mother who lost her daughter because that pain in that moment is perceived as the same thing because that is the worst pain that that baby has ever felt the same way that mother is crying harder than she's ever cried before. And I I think that kind of interestingly ties into the intensity of teenage relationships because love is so powerful when it's truly being experienced for the first time. The same way that pain is so powerful when it's true, truly being experienced for the first time. Um, I don't know how important that was, but that was, I think that was the fleeting thought that kept running away from me. And I, I don't know. I might yeah. have had more to add to well, it, we- but that's what I got now. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure it can have its own episode. I didn't realize that Terry had words of wisdom that actually made sense. My only um, one-on-one interaction with him was when we were in that little white room that I think you're only in when you see your family or Terry, I don't know. And he was like, so, uh, you won't accept that you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, I'm not, I've only had like a couple beers twice in my whole life. Um, and he's like, well, uh, I'm going to show you why you shouldn't be an alcoholic. And your dad said, I can like basically force you to drink two whatever's of whiskey. And I'm like, I'm not going to drink it. And he's like, well, I'm just going to call Angelo and so-and-so in here. And we're just going to like use a funnel. And I was like, I guess I can't stop you. Like, you know, like, what are you going to do? Um, I guess I'm getting waterboarded with whiskey today. So I didn't know he made sense. Well, so thank you for sharing that. And that's, so there, Stockholm syndrome, whatever, you know, push, pull, whatever. Um, I have a tattoo of Terry on my arm. Wow. I have a, I have a 
portrait of his face on my arm. I've heard so many horrible, horrible stories of Terry in the past. Um, and I'm not saying anything that I say to denounce any of those stories. But I and, and maybe this is me lying to myself, but I want to believe that some at some point along the line, thank God, before or during I was there, he at least learned something. Because um, I, I, I truly believe that out of anybody at the school, if I really, really learned positive things, a lot of that came from him. Um, not that it necessarily all came in the right way. You know, Terry is the man who held me up against the wall by my neck in the corner and threw me on the ground. Like Terry is the man that pretty much choked me out when I called my mom a bitch on the phone. You know what I mean? Terry is the man that made me rewrite those letters. Um, but he also had moments where he showed that he actually wanted to give something positive. Um, and I don't know. I, I I don't. I'm not sitting. I'm not sitting here trying to to make anybody's wrongs right or whatever. But I think I think I think it's easy. It's really easy for us to look at all the staff the same way, whether it's all the way right or all the way left. You know what I mean? Whether they were amazing and trying to save our lives, or if they were evil and didn't care about us. Um, but the fact is, is they were humans, and I think that they all learned things in the process of being counselors and teachers there you know and i i think outside of the time that i was there but also just who i was there with and, and around I, compared to a lot of things i had it easy i got very very lucky where i got placed in that school and when i think i think terry and lindy were both at their best right before family eight folded um based off of other stories I've heard, you know, I've never seen some of the horrible stuff I've heard. Um, and I think, I think they're too, they too also really realize I, there were times that Terry would let us know that he disagreed with what the school was doing. There were times that Terry let us know that he wanted to do things differently and that he even would do things the same way they're telling him to in the past, but he's not going to do it that way anymore. I don't know if Terry was fired or if he left or what, but I, I want to say that one of the reasons why Terry and Lindy left the school is because they saw fault in a lot of the ways that things were being done and were trying to change it. And that wasn't accepted, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just making that up. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe that's me just trying to find acceptance in him because I painted like he was my father figure there. You know, he was the, he was the father figure of our family but I really painted him as a father figure because of how he treated me. I don't know. I, I, I saw him come down really, really hard on some people and I saw him come down really, really hard on me sometimes. Um, you know, he's, I, you know what, now I think about it, I'm pretty sure he's the one that told me that Sydney was fucking my friends. So, so mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe, maybe even me having this conversation right now, maybe this is part of Stockholm syndrome, but, uh, Mm, okay, so this stop. I so I'm not a psychology major. I don't really know all about Stockholm syndrome. So we'll have to like have one of our psych people talk to us about that. But well, yeah, I, um, I use that kind feel, of loosely to blanket statement. You know, what I mean? feel but, like yeah. the whole. I know, but I feel like the whole term is kind of like loosely, and I think it's kind of a little bit dismissive in a way 
because I like this is not a normal situation. This is a hostage, like serious, surreal, crazy, blow your mind. I don't know that most adults with fully formed brains could go through it and not kill themselves situation. And then everybody has different relationships with all of our captors. And some of our captors have different motives and treat people differently. And then also just on a whole, when you're in this kind of a extreme darkness, however brutal it is comparatively, there are people, characters that they're, it's gray. It's like when you're watching these movies, if you put it in a fictional perspective, I think people can relate more and you're, or a TV series where you're like, I'm not sure if they're really a good guy or a bad guy because they're on the bad side, but they do good things and sometimes help. You can't trust them, you know, but you know, it's a, it's a middle ground. And I don't think that we should be dismissive of those tiny moments or those big people that um, have moments of light. I think that's really important. I think those those relationships, whether they were, you know, from a child's perspective or from a Stockholm perspective at the time and whatnot, um, I think there's something to that. And I think it's kind of really, I, I would be very interested in delving in there someday. No, oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I don't know. It's really, it, it really is interesting to, to, it's weird because this, this is my life, you know what I mean? And like that, these are my experiences. But without having the opportunity to like talk to somebody like this, it, uh, I don't know. It's not like in my daily cognitive process to like really evaluate those things so deeply. Sometimes it is, I guess, but other times it isn't. And I think a lot of times I just shut it off because I just want to like accept whatever I accepted previously because that's easier. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, but you've had like some interesting expressions of like how you felt at the time. Um, do you want to like briefly plug your band and tell us what Hancock and some of those other songs were about? You know, for those of us who can't understand, like, what, is this heavy metal music or I don't understand genres? Well, tell me. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. I don't really either. <laughs> Kids these days have run off I know everything's alternative that's good right like if it's alternative it's good like I hope know? so because that's what we call ourselves now we're an alternative rock okay now. good that's what I think um yeah well so to to bring that full circle so when I left the family school I got back into music like I was into music my whole life uh well since I I I, I was into sports and then I, I broke my back when I was really young and then I got into music because I couldn't do sports anymore um and so I started a band after I left the family school called from under the willow, which was a direct reference to the family school. Cause we had a willow tree out by the ponds. I don't know if that, that was probably there yep. for forever. You know, mm -hmm. it's a tree. Um, so <laughs> if only the first, uh, the first EP of that was literally all lyrics based off of, notes that I took in living skills class with with Terry it was like really uh I don't know Ex I was I was like 20 years old so it's like excessively psychoanalyzed lyrics like look at yourself and change yourself I don't know mind you the ref if you, if you hear anything from the band it's nothing like any of that it's it's completely different but that was like heavy metal um 
and I that's that was that would have been the band that I was with when I met Sydney again after our after our long break. Um, but yeah, so from under the willow was initially started based off of thoughts from that school, and that's what that name meant was because that's where I would go write and collect my thoughts after living skills. I would take those notes and I would go sit under that tree and I'd kind of like write journal entries based off of that. And that's where a lot of the first lyrics came from. Again, if you go look up that band, lyrics have nothing to do with any of that. And they're probably actually pretty horrible because I took a hard left turn with that band, uh, probably right when I turned 21 and started drinking. <laughs> and then, so it became, and mind you, that was when me, I, me and Sydney had separated. So the whole first album, of that band is me talking horribly about Sydney and relationships and the dude that she was with and probably just women in general that it just does. It's not great. You know, I don't, I don't align with my lyricism in that album at all. And even the second album that we came out with, that's like a very political album. Some things I still align with on that album, as far as like, the anti-police state type stuff and and whatnot probably don't necessarily align with the delivery of some of it but that's neither here nor there um the the band that i just just started right before the uh right before the lockdown we 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 literally dropped our first album like the day of the lockdown or something worst business plan ever um you know it's really hard to find traction right now but that that band actually started out as the next album for from under the willow um but i don't know in the process of from under the willow and me starting to just live differently and rant about politics and my feelings somehow i got derailed off of what was really important to me in music um, and it, being in the metalcore scene and and just involved in, in touring and that there's a there's a very competitive nature of being the craziest, the fastest, the hardest, and the heaviest. Um, and then also having those awe-inspiring lyrics that are just like, did he just say that type stuff? You know, um, and that just wasn't actually what that wasn't my connection with music. Um, so when I started writing this third album, I was trying to really find that again i was trying to find what what gave me goosebumps when i was 16 like when i was emotional in my room writing lyrics on my wall with a sharpie you know what i mean same I'm <laughs> and, and, like i'm tr i was trying to reconnect with what it's like there was there was no actual f feeling behind what i was doing anymore i was just like a robot and like yeah on stage it was intense. There was emotion, there was feeling and blah, blah, blah. But like my personal connection with the music was, was, was fleeting away. Um, so I tried to regain control of that in this third album and it just wasn't working. Like I was working with the same producer as I had done the past two albums with, we had kind of like gotten to a muscle memory mode of how we were approaching things and, and, and our process. And to me, that was stifling the process because what I really wanted to do was backtrack to before I ever met this guy that I'm working with and find that. And I couldn't do it. We kept butting heads. Um, so, so I thought to myself, I'm like, well, how do I, how do I, how do I reconnect with this emotion that I'm trying to find? So 
looking back on listening to music, crying in my room, writing lyrics on the wall, there's one band that I did that a lot to. And there was a, it's, I wasn't allowed to listen to most non-Christian music growing up. So I was very into the Christian metalcore scene. Um, and Under Oath was, you know, one of my favorite bands and lyrically a band that helped me get through a lot of stuff. Um, and I, I like, it was like an epiphany to me. It's just like, oh, I just need to go listen to, I just need to go listen to music from 2006, you know, cause that's when I was, that was in my, that was my preteen woes. You know what I mean? That's when I was like really connecting to music on a different level. And right as I say that I opened my Instagram and sure enough, the drummer of Under Earth made a post saying that he wanted to produce band. And it was just like, what the, what the fuck is going on here? Like, can he, can he hear me? Like the iPhone normally can, like, I didn't know what's going on. And so I'm like, all right, whatever, you know? So there's, there's one song on the third album, mind you, the third album never got released, but there was one song on the third album that I feel like I stood up to my producer at the time. And I was like, Nope, we're going to make this how I want it. It's going to feel this way. It doesn't need to be crazy. It's going to be how I want it to be. You know what I mean? There was, so there was one song that was like that. And I sent that to Aaron and I said, Hey, um, I know we've never met. Well, actually we had met and I was just like, you know, I don't know if you remember me, but I worked security for you this one night, blah, blah, blah. Gave him the spiel and I was just like, so I'm I'm in this metal band and I, I wrote this new album, but the direction is getting away from me and I'm having issues with my producer and I already spent almost $10,000 doing this album and I feel like I'm at a loss. And here is one song off the album that I feel like is kind of going my way, but it's still not where I want it to be. Is this something that you'd be interested in, in helping me do is trying to, to fix this album. And I sent it to him and mind you that that song is like three minutes and 20 seconds long. And like four minutes later, he sent me a message back. He's just like, dude, I love your voice. And I kind of don't really like your music. <laughs> and, uh, I was just like, I don't know. I was so amazed that he even listened to the song and got back to me that quick that I, I didn't really care that he was criticizing the music and also equally didn't hear that he liked my voice. I was just kind of like stuck in this weird emotional place. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Long story short, we kept trying to fix that 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 album and it just wasn't working. And we were getting to the point where it's just like, okay, so... I have this, I, I have scheduled to have this Grammy nominated artist fly from Utah and live with me for a month and do an album, you know, and we're a couple weeks away. And like, this is still not at all what I want it to be. And I was flipping out. Like I was, I was having an anxiety attack. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm paying him more money on top of the money that I already spent and kind of threw away on the last album. So I have this, this financial anxiety. I have this anxiety that, Everything that I'm trying to manifest and create is not going to happen. Um, and I, he, I, I just, he called me and he's just like, Hey bud, like what's going on? You know, I'm like, dude, I don't know. Like I'm not trying to waste your time. And I just feel like this isn't going how I want it to go and this and this and blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, look, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say what I've been thinking the whole time. You need to start over. He's like, your voice is great. You have a beautiful story to tell. You're not telling it here because you're so fixated on keeping certain things from your past. You need to erase who you thought you were or who you thought you needed to be. And you just need to sit down and you need to write a new album. 
And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is crazy. You know, I've spent upwards of two, two years writing albums in the past and then 30 to 60 days recording them, you know? And here he's like, look, we're going to push the date back a little bit. My schedule got messed up. We're going to be, we're, he, I'm going to spend 14 days with you. And we're going to track the album and it'll be done. But that's going to give you an additional two weeks to write this album. So now I have four weeks to write to me, what is going to be the most pivotal album in my life? Like the most important thing for me to do because I'm doing it by myself for a change and I'm trying to really bring it back to my roots. So I spend four weeks every single day coming down, sitting in the room that I'm sitting in now, writing music, threw away half of it. You know what I mean? Um, and then he gets here. We track the album in 14 days. You can go find it. It's out there. Um, but yeah, like one, one of the songs, all the songs on that album are about becoming of me. Like just everything that is inside my head, like the constant struggle of not knowing who I am, whether that's because of what I've went through or, or whatnot. Um, the constant struggle of suicidal thoughts and trying to deal with being a weird statistic because for those of you that know anything about the family school like if you've killed yourself you're a statistic and if you haven't you're also a statistic and that's like a really weird place to live in um because it kind of takes away the actual reality and emotion of the situation which is very severe um so there's a lot of a lot of stuff about that but there's also a song that i really wasn't even sure if i wanted to put on the album um, called Hancock, which is like the actual story, a very, very thinned out version of the actual story of the school. Um, and what it, what it touches on more so than, than it really does the school is how I felt about my family sending me to the school. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's music. It is what it is. It's very subjective. You don't have to like it. Um, the lyrics, and this is like weird because before this project, I wanted everybody to like everything and to understand me. But I said what I wanted to say and I'm happy with it so much that I literally don't give a crap if anybody else likes it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I'm happy with how it came out. And I think if, there if there's any way that people can connect with it and understand where I was coming from, whether it's that song and you've been to the these types of programs, or if it's another song on that album that that strikes to you, that's really all that matters to me at this point. And like, I don't even care if I know that it happens. Like, if it happens, that's great. Um, I don't know. I'm getting really tangent here. You're gonna, if you get me talking about music, I'm I'm gonna like switch to businessman West mode and like act like I'm selling you something. So we gotta be careful. Oh, gotta be careful I'm sorry. <laughs> didn't mean to tr didn't mean to trigger the empire. So I will say, so before I get off the topic, just because my bandmates would hate me. Because you didn't say, say the it. name of the band yeah. <laughs> or the out. You were like, yeah. businessman Wes will come out. And I'm like, wow, that businessman yeah. needs a talking to. Yeah, businessman needs some training. So, <laughs> well, so yeah, so that third album turned into this band. This band originally was named Willow as a stripped down version of the last one. And that apparently Willow Smith kind of has that shit on lock. Uh, in the music oh. industry so we couldn't use that um, so we went searching for a new name and 
one of the thrown out lyrics from one of the songs was a lone wolf is a dead wolf. And I just always really liked that term dead wolf. Um, and then we wanted to be edgy. So we put them into one word and changed the O to a U and here's dead wolf. Um, so yeah, dead wolf, all one word with a U in the place of the O is our name. Um, we have an album out called too far gone, which is everything that I was just talking about. Um, I haven't began to write a second album yet. It's like, well, I have, but like, not like physically, like it's, it's up there. Um, but yeah. Dead yeah, Wolf. And I, Dead Wolf. And I'm going to, I'll link to it as well because, um, you know, even if it's not your, cause it's not my type of music that I normally listen to, but I really do enjoy, um, the Hancock song. Like, so even if that's not your style, like it's just like with the, with the Christian metal, it's like, well, if you like Christian music, you might just try Christian metal. I dig it. I did that. So, um, I'll definitely make sure I'm glad that, uh, you know, losing access to your musical expression at the family school didn't hinder you expressing yourself musically moving forward. Well, I think it probably did for a while, but I, it's yeah. like, it was like an, an inevitable relationship that was like, like me and my wife, like I was bound to do music. So it was, it was going to come back one way or the other. Um, but yeah, your yeah. life is super like uh, destiny convincing in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't realize until after I did the Music Man episode with Liz and Liz that I hadn't been singing since I went into the family school. Not that I'm a singer, right? But like I am one of those people. I'm Irish, right? So like I like I when I'm alone, I just sing to myself so it's not silent because I can't handle silence, you know, like one of those. Um, yeah. So so and now I've been like a little weird frolicky elf with it. But yeah, anyways, I digress. Um, so to wrap it up, because I really just think we, you should be, you know, on the podcast as often as you want. And obviously, if you want to like host like a tough brotherly love section in the future, that's always on the table for you. But do you have anything you want to say directly closing to any of our survivor brothers out there who might have been dealing with the same difficulties you've been with like facing this and dealing with it and moving forward? Um. You know, it, it's interesting because like there's so much that and, and obviously there will have to just be more podcasts and there have to be more conversations regardless of the podcast. Um, so I will say that is like I'm an open book. If you're listening to this, like find me on social media and let's talk. Um, and like there's nothing you could say. Well, <laughs> most there's most things that you probably could say that you might think will, will turn me off to the conversation that probably won't, you know. Um, and and I think for anybody not just guys you know anybody um try and knock down this barrier of what you think is normal or okay or whatever you think is supposed to happen or what you're supposed to do and just be honest um because that is like we are to we are very commonly our own worst enemy you know and, and overthinking and 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 whatnot so i i think that a lot of us stemming back to the guys thing a lot of us really overthink um not just how we feel but how the how those feelings are going to get received and how negatively people might look at us and i think if you live in that like that is that is a self-manipulative self-manipulative manipulative way of living um and I think it's harmful to, to yourself to, to be that way. And, and it's fine. Like, I'm not saying like, 
go cry three hours a day. Like that's your homework. Um, but it's completely okay to be honest. And even if, even if your honest thought is, I don't really agree with anything you said, like that's still an honest thought. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's just okay for dudes to talk and it's like a weird thing in this culture. And even like some people might listen to this and be like, yeah, this dude's kind of a, kind of a pussy and whatever should just man up blah, 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 whatever you're going to hear that type of person all the time um but the fact is, is is you have to live with yourself for the rest of your life like people are going to come and go your opinions of those people's are going to of those people are going to come and go um i don't know i would just say be honest uh do no harm <laughs> as, as little as you can um but that and but that also means to yourself and i think a lot of the times especially people that have gone through situations like this are so focused on not doing harm to others that they're harming themselves and i think it's you should just know that it's okay to chat about it or to think about it or to just be true in your emotions no matter what they are um and there are people out there that are willing to talk and listen to you about that stuff um so don't think that like because you're a dude, you're an unnecessary part of the story because you're very, very necessary. You really are. Um, I really appreciate you, my brother. I think this is really important. Um, I'm really concerned about the loss of our brothers recently. And so I really do hope that by you having this conversation, I hope we didn't turn off the guys with all the romantic combo, but I'm sure other guys were in your situation and my situation as well and have been affected in their relationships. Um, even if they got married, affected in those marriages as well from this experience. So thank you. Yeah, of course. And like I said, this is one conversation in the rest of the world. So maybe there would be more podcasts. And if not, there will definitely be more conversations. Um, I don't know. I'm down to keep touching, touching on touchy subjects. So Touching on touchy subjects. That's perfect. Let's do it. So thank you for listening back to like the two hour story time, but it was worth it. It was, uh, you know, really great for me personally to talk about some of these relatable issues with one of our brothers. And I hope you don't feel like we're being sexist when I'm trying to focus on dealing with healing the masculine energy, but I just feel like it's something that is disproportionately being dismissed. And it's the reason that our friends, our family, our brother survivors are literally just dying all around us. So, you know, if you want to support us with our mental health mission, check out Exposing Circle of Hope. Uh, it's a nonprofit now, and that is their mission right now is to recruit mental health professionals. So if you are one, you want to help us or, and, or, you know, raise donations to fund those mental health professionals to like low cost provide specific trauma informed therapies for survivors. So, um, please check out all the links in the show description, check out the band dead wolf. Remember it's dead W U L F one word and their song Hancock about the family school and please give Wes some love. Um, and, uh, give us some feedback, you know, um, are we crazy? Are we just like self-indulgent little jerks that just like to talk to each other on our phones and pretend it's a podcast or, you know, is this helping you out? Um, we definitely want to talk to more of our brothers as well. So, um, you know, keep in touch until next time.